My dwelling place is God most high, my refuge and my fortress. When plagues and pestilence draw nigh, I'm hidden in His presence. When terrors fall and arrows fly, His shield will be. When stones across my pathway lie, on angels' wings I am carried. My dwelling place is God most high, a present help in danger. I rest secure in love's pure light Beneath my master's favor He freed me from the fowler's snare Where sin and shame had bound me Deceived I'd make my refuge there To fearness he Uh, some uh, announcements real quick. First of all, um, Zoom Bible study at 11.30 this morning if you need an invitation to that. 
uh, let me know. We're going to be discussing Jesus at Jesus who is the true Israel. And so if you haven't received an invitation and you'd like to participate in that, let me know. And then we have another couple announcements here, and we have Stacy Stocky here to uh, give those announcements to you. Hi, my name is Stacy, and I want to talk to you about youth group. We are restarting our youth group here at St. James, and it's going to look a little bit different than it has before. This is going to be for junior high and senior high. So if you're in sixth grade through 12th grade, this is for you. We're going to start today with a big back-to-school fun night here at the church. We are a pretty small crowd, so we've got all the space to accommodate this. If you're able to come tonight, please come. You're going to find out all kinds of things about what we're going to be doing this year, what youth group will look like. I need adult volunteers too. So mom, dad, anyone here at the church who wants to stick around, come tonight. See what it's all about. See how you can help. That would be great. We are going to be meeting on Tuesday nights. Not this week since we're meeting tonight, but starting the following week, we are going to be meeting Tuesday nights here at the church. I have a calendar that I've made that I'll be passing out tonight at youth group with all of our events. And if you can stick around and help me, that'd be great. Here's what it will kind of look like. We'll all meet together in the church for an opener. We'll worship together. We'll talk about upcoming events and announcements. And then we're going to watch a video Bible study. We're starting out with Psalms for the fall. And we're going to talk about Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does this mean? We've heard this verse so many times throughout our life. Most of you know it. You've memorized it. But we're going to really talk about this whole chapter and what it means when the Lord is our shepherd. After we watch our video, it's about seven minutes long, we'll break up in junior high We'll go meet downstairs, and they'll talk with some leaders just like you, and we'll ask some questions about that video we just watched, and we'll talk about what does this mean? What is God saying in this passage, and, you know, what is going on with my life? And then we'll pray together as a group. Senior high will do the same thing. They'll split up, and they'll do the same thing. They'll talk about the devotion. They'll talk with one another and read more scriptures that support, you know, what we just talked about and uh, things that we can learn, you know, about God and what he's trying to tell us. Then we'll all come back together in the sanctuary. We'll close with more joyful singing, a group prayer, and then we'll have some snacks and you go home. So this is what it's going to look like. Where I need adult helpers is to come and just show your face and be a part of it. Connect with these kids. Be willing to play a game. Be willing to pray with somebody. And be willing to ask some of these video questions. That is it. You do not have to teach. You do not have to stand up in front. I just want you to be in a little small group for 15 minutes to talk to these kids about what's going on in their life and what we just all watch together. So think about that. Join me tonight if you can. For those of you who are staying home and uh, self-isolating, I would love for you to reach out to me because these videos we can do online together. So send me an email, call me on my cell phone, talk to me some way, let me know where you are, who you are, and we will connect virtually. If we have to go to a virtual meeting, we will all Zoom this together, and it will be great, and you will love it. <laughs> I have created, with my friend Jamie, a Facebook group that's private for our youth group. It's through St. James and St. James Youth. I need to connect with all of my families here at the church to get you into this private group so that you can be up to date on what's going on, events, youth group nights, sudden surprise Zoom meetings, things like that. So, look for this group on Facebook. I'm going to be sending out invites, but if I miss some of you, I need you to ask to join. Ask to join the group, because you have to be a Facebook friend already 
to be able to invite someone. And I want to be Facebook friends with all of you. So reach out on that. Couple other things real quick. I'll try not to take too long. Um, we are doing this thing called 150 Days of Praise, where I'm going to challenge all of the youth, sixth grade and up, to read through the book of Psalms with me. And I made these fun little bookmarks so they can keep it at home. And every day, we're going to read one chapter together, self-led, on your own at home. I'll be reading, they'll be reading, and it's going to tie in with our message that we're doing as we focus on Psalm 23, and then we're going to focus on Psalm 119. And we're going to take a few weeks to break this down, but I want them reading every day and being in God's Word because it is so important. All of you parents, everyone else in the church, join me on this. Join me on this if you don't already have a reading plan. It will end January 28th because there's 150 chapters. So it's a big commitment, but it's going to be great. Next thing is we have a serve opportunity youth group is hosting. You have to be 15 years old or older to do it, but it's at Amazing Grace at Logan's Place in Edwardsville. And I have a sign-up genius form on our church website, stjamesglencarbon.org, where you can go and sign up for a slot. It is Saturday the 5th. It's a holiday weekend. But what this building is, is it started out just a couple of women hosting other women in their homes, trying to bring them in under their umbrella of God's love and protection and help them out when they fell in hard times. This ministry that they started in their homes grew, and they were able to purchase this old brick building in Edwardsville that they're trying to restore with the hopes that once it's completed, they will have a day facility where women can come during the day, learn how to manage their finances, learn how to cook, learn basic childcare, learn how to interview for a job, and they will pour into them the love of Jesus so that they are encouraged to pick up from the ashes of whatever they're struggling with and move forward with their heads high and with confidence and knowing Christ loves them. What they need is some people to do tuck pointing. I hear you do not need experience for this, but it is a labor job. Um, they're looking for 10 people from our church to help them out this Saturday. Lunch will be provided for the morning shift. If you want to stay all day, stay all day. Um, if you have any service hours you need for scouts or for National Honor Society, this is perfect. Bring a pair of gloves and sign up. Last couple of things. Uh, check us out on Facebook. We have other ways that our youth are going to be getting involved in the community. Operation Christmas Child, I brought a box. I have 150 of these at home. And our youth group will be folding them in September and then presenting them in October to get our church involved in helping out with this great ministry. We are also going to be writing letters to some nursing home residents in Alhambra who have asked for pen pals. They are asking for pen pals. They want people to send them letters of encouragement. They're lonely, uh, they're bored, and they just want to talk with someone. So our youth group is going to be doing this. Our church can do it too. So if you want more information about that, talk to me. And I think that's it. Thank you, Stacy. Really, really excellent. Okay, let's stand and begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins to God, our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, and forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. 
for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. This morning's psalm is a bit from Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated.
reading is Romans 8, 35-39. We finally come to the end of Romans 8. And Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me just remind you real quick here that uh, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember this. This question here is the fourth in a series of four rhetorical questions that Paul asks with the implied answer, nobody. So he asked back in verse 33, if God is for us, who can be against us? Implied answer, Nobody. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Implied answer, nobody can. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Implied answer, nobody can. And then he goes on and explains that in those texts. This is the fourth of this question, of who, who, can separate us from, uh, the, who can separate us from God's love? Is the fourth in a series of questions with the implied answer, nobody. Paul's evidently very, very intent, this emotional appeal, in convincing us that there's nothing that can come between us and God's love. Okay. Verse 34, who is to condemn? I'm sorry, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, he means the list that we just read back in verse 35, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. When we started, so we're right at the end of Romans 5-8, through God's story encapsulated by Paul in these four chapters the story of everything, beginning with Adam in Romans chapter 5 in the fall, straight through to new creation in Romans chapter 8. And now, when we got to Romans 8, um, I, I thought going into it, this Romans 8 was going to be about new creation. And of course it has been. We've talked about that quite a bit. God's determination to come and make all things new, to set all things to right, to undo all the wrong. How, I wasn't prepared, and I don't know why, but maybe just reading it with different eyes this time, I wasn't prepared for the way that suffering weaves itself in and out of this theme. Paul keep, Paul's constantly bringing suffering, our current suffering, into this theme of God's future renewal of all things that started with the resurrection of Jesus and will culminate when Jesus returns. And I, it just occurred to me this week that, um, that these two things for Paul, the reason why he's weaving in and out is not necessarily because he's saying, 
okay, you're suffering now, don't worry, it's going to get better later. But Because he wants to organically tie the two together. And, and I guess I should have known this because he says way back in verse 17, a verse that we've talked about a ton in here, and I, I think I've mentioned every week for the past four weeks, that you guys get everything. Those who are in Jesus Christ inherit the, old, the whole creation, provided, he says, if you suffer with Jesus in order that you might be glorified with him. So this suffering that we go through is suffering with Christ, and so it's an intrinsic part of the new creation coming. If the suffering of Jesus is what actually brings about the redemption and renewal of all things, then our suffering, joined with Jesus, is a part of that. And as I was thinking about this this week, I I was remembering this story, this guy, I was talking to this guy uh, at Good Shepherd, and uh, he was talking about having cancer, and he had just found out he had cancer, and of course, horrified with this right and super scared and the worst thing he's the worst part he says to me is you know you find out you have cancer and then you go home and you're supposed to go to sleep that night like knowing that there's this alien in your body killing you from the inside out and you are not stopping it's work it's active while you're sleeping it is active and there's nothing you can do so he said the turning point for him psychologically was interestingly enough his first chemo visit you know, they, pl- they plug him up, and he knows this is going to be brutal, that this chemo is going to make me super sick, and I'm going to be miserable. But, like, w- when you know, he feels the chemicals enter his body, and it was that moment he said that I was like, okay, I'm good to go. Something's fighting against it. Now, I was thinking this week, like, the only way that you would, like, just decontextualize, like, just, okay, f- forget about the cancer, forget about, like, your future. Just imagine somebody sitting down in a chair and somebody plugging them into a machine that pumps chemicals into their body that are designed to kill their cells inside their body. You would think, that's horror movie stuff, right? That's torture stuff. But it made sense to him because it was the necessary path to good health. And good health was the goal that made sense of the chemo. It worked both ways. And that, I think, is what Paul is doing here by weaving suffering and new creation in and out is that in order for new creation to happen, suffering has to happen. And it's not random, it's not torture, it's not God somehow punishing you and he's angry at you. It's God's key, it's, and, and by the way, it's, it's not okay. We don't say, well, you know, it's, you, you really aren't suffering, you just need to have more faith or pray or turn it over to God or you need to have your devotions there, whatever it is. No, suffering is really bad and it's suffering, but it's leading to this goal that makes sense of what the suffering is now. That's why Paul's been weaving this in and out. Now, so what's the connection? The connection between chemo and good health is this chemical that's going to make you miserable, but it's going to get rid of the cancer. What's the connection between your suffering and new creation? For Paul, that chemical, it's not a chemical, that thing that, set, that, that, thing that binds us, the bridge between your current suffering in this world and new creation is God's love. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with, with Paul at all, this might be a little bit surprising to you because Paul just doesn't talk about God's love a ton. There's a famous passage in Galatians 2 where he talks about, you know, Jesus is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. But other than that, it doesn't come up a lot. You know, if, I, I've said this before. You know, John, if you, if you read the Gospel of John or the letters, First and Second, Third John, love is like every other line. Love is in there. For Paul, it's not so much. So does that mean that Paul's not interested in it? No, Paul's a little different in the way he communicates. Now, at the beginning of this story, if you go back to Romans 5, the very beginning, Paul said 
that the hope that we have, the certain hope that we have in new creation is founded on this fact. He said in verse 5 of Romans chapter 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now, in this text, right at the end of the story, he mentions God's love three times here. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that far from being disinterested in God's love, it's an underlying theme. He's not going to mention it every other verse. He's not going to hit you over the head with it. He, he doesn't feel the need to remind you every other verse. Now, what we're talking about is God loves you. But he starts off with God's love. He ends with God's love. It's the foundation for this whole story. It is, in fact, the bridge that connects us between our current suffering in this life and between new creation. One quick, let me make a quick comment about just in general about this text that we just read, and then uh, we'll move to the, the, the main points I want to give you. The enemies here, Paul's really careful to point this out. So the question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? So obviously, there, there's, there's an, a potential enemy that Paul's worried about that could separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes on to list a bunch of things. Persecution, famine, sword, nakedness. You know what you have in there is you have like general words for suffering. You have person to person, like outside from other people suffering, persecution. You have economic suffering, famine. Um, you have like uh, the sword. All these words, by the way, are, are, are stuff that Paul experienced in his life. If you go and read the book of Acts or read 2 Corinthians, he mentions all these words as a part of his own personal experience, except for the sword, which tradition says is what ended his life in Rome. He was beheaded. So these are all like stuff that people, that all of us experience from time to time. Persecution and suffering from different quarters, whether it's internal or whether it's external. Persecution and suffering. Paul's concerned, look, the, the, his point is not this. His point is not that suffering is the enemy of God's love. His point is that in suffering, we might think that God's love has abandoned us. D do you catch that? Persecution is not the enemy. Back in verse 17, suffering is actually the means by which you get cured from cancer. Suffering is actually the means by which you inherit new creation. So it's not that suffering is the enemy. It's that we might imagine that in our suffering that God has somehow abandoned us. We do this all the time, right? So here's what I want to say this morning. Here, here's uh, what I want to say. You're suffering, and I realize I've, I've talked about suffering a lot, and I wasn't planning on doing this the past month, but it's just in, in Romans 8 a lot. What Paul wants us to do in this text is to contextualize our suffering. Don't think of your suffering as an isolated event. If you think of like the horror of sitting in a chair and somebody pumping chemicals in your body, you'll be rightly frightened, uh, uh, very discouraged. But if you think of it within its context, suffering can be seen for what it's supposed to be in the Bible. Never good. It's never like, okay, so uh, buck up, partner. But it has meaning and purpose, okay? So three things here in Romans 8. Uh, Paul wants us to see that our suffering, he wants us to see our suffering in the context of God's love. He wants us to see our suffering in the context of God's story. And then he wants us to see our suffering in the context of God's suffering. So first of all, let's talk about seeing our, our suffering in the context of God's love. So like I said, Paul mentions love three times here in verse 35. Actually, we'll come back to this verse in just a second. But first, let's start off with, let's start off with this, that there are, there are, when we talk about God being love, we have to be super careful because we all have different interpretations of love and we have to talk about what the, not 
we have, to, we, we have to use the interpretation of love that Paul's using right here if we're going to make sense of what he's saying. So I think I mentioned this in Romans 5 as an illustration, but you guys, the, the love storyline about love means never having to say you're sorry, that's totally a cliche at this point. I mean, you can find memes about that. But actually, that's kind of, that's a theme that we all sort of have in our heads that everybody in, this, in our culture grapples with. That love means you accept me. That if you love me, you take me as I am. That, that if you love me, you would not correct me or say, I find fault with you here. Love means complete acceptance. Of course, this is, right, this is partly true, right? There's, there's a certain element of truth in this. I don't, I, don't, I don't get to tell my kids, well, I don't accept you because I don't like what you're, you know, I, I don't get to tell my kids, well, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I, I don't get to tell my kids, you know, you're playing out in the middle of the highway, but, you know, I, I, I love and accept you. I said that wrong too. I'm supposed to call them, you know, I'm supposed to challenge them to do what's right, to be safe, but I still don't say, if they play out in the middle of the highway, I don't say, well, I don't love you anymore, you know. But the problem is that, there's a certain amount of, truth, amount of truth to it, but the problem is that when we apply this to God and we turn God into, like, so God loving me means that I should never have to say I'm sorry to him. Like, he should accept me as I am. And this uh, clearly in Scripture is not what's meant, and it's not what, how Paul defines love here. I mean, another, another option is this, is love is what, love is my happiness that I feel around you. And love is me making you happy. And of course, this is, this is true too, right? Like it, we are supposed to serve and take care of those we love and be served by them. And that's a part of like any good relationship is, you know, working to make them happy and be made happy by them. The problem though with that again is that, well, A, it's not the way that Paul defines love here, uh, but B, um, also, if we, if we use that to, to here's the problem, if, if we take that definition of love and apply it to God, it's God's job to make me happy, which, by the way, is a super common definition that we all struggle with with God. I talk to lots of people, I talk to my own heart, and why is this going wrong? Is God not happy with me? That's a common theme. Or, I want to make this decision, and it might be the wrong decision, but I should just do it, right, because God wants me to be happy. That's actually not what Paul's talking about here. What is Paul talking about here? What is the right definition of love here in this text? Uh, let me read verse 35 to you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul doesn't talk specific. Paul doesn't talk generally about God's love. Paul talks specifically about the love of Christ. God's love manifested in the crucified Jesus. God's love is real to us because he gave himself up for us. This is the way John agrees here is that we should love each other. And how do you know what love is? Love is giving up your life for each other. That's, what, that's how God loves us. That's how Jesus loves us. That's how we should love each other. Look at verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him. For Paul, this is Jesus' language. In him, with him. Through him. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus loved us. We can be conquerors through Jesus' love for us. Uh, last line of verse 39. We'll be, who, who, nobody is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For Paul, God's love is fundamentally him sacrificing himself, becoming a human, to die for us and to be risen from the dead for us. It's fundamentally about sacrifice. That's what love is. So there's this, uh, did, you, did you guys uh, uh, watch Downton Abbey? Uh, in the first service, it was almost universal, but it was the right demographic for Downton Abbey watching in the first service. 
So in Downton Abbey, in Le- so I'll just admit, I did not watch the whole thing, but Angela did, and she was kind of into it. And so I found myself frequently, you know, sort of half watching it. I'd be reading a book, sitting with her, and she would be watching it. And there's this one scene that I remember that's, that I thought was really good. There, there's a girl in the show named Daisy who's p- part of the, uh, the service staff. She works in the kitchen. And uh, Daisy, there's a, there's a guy who's in love with her named William. And he wants to marry her really bad. And she just frankly is not really into him. But he's getting ready to go off to war. Uh, this is during World War I. And um, he says, will you marry me? And she says yes. And partly she's kind of doing it a little bit. She doesn't really have the emotions. But she's kind of doing it out of like, I should serve him in this way. I should send him away with a wife who's going to support him behind. And so she marries him. And he, really soon after they get married, he gets sent to the front and he gets killed. So there's this scene afterwards, after he's died, and there's this scene where she's talking to his father, her, um, her father-in-law, and she's saying, and she just breaks down and she says, I just feel, I gotta tell you, I just feel super guilty because I wasn't honest. I married him and I didn't love him. And I, you know, I, I wanted to be good to him and I supported him. And I liked him, but I didn't love him. And I just feel so guilty about that. And he says to her, her father-in-law says to her, I don't remember the exact words, and I certainly wasn't going to go back and watch the whole thing just for this illustration. But he says basically something along the lines of, oh, you poor girl, that is love. What you did was love. Maybe you didn't have feelings, but that's love. And you guys know this from your experience. Anybody who's been married for longer than a few months or has kids or has friends that you've had for more than a year or two, you know that you frequently don't have these feelings of like, oh, I'm just so committed to these people. Like, I just want to be with them all the time. I want to talk to them. There's frequently moments when you're like, why did we even have these kids? Or like, did I make the, did I, like, you know, there's frequent moments of like, did I make the wrong decision with a spouse? Or like, I I don't need, maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong friends. I'm just not doing it for me. Frequent moments of boredom and frustration and even more, you know, greater levels of like angst for for some people and and pain. But you know that that's, you know in your experience that that's not exactly what love is. You don't want to feel bad. You don't want a relationship where, you know, there's strife and frustration. But love is this commitment that I exist for you. What you need is more important to me than my feelings even. And even more important to me than what I need. That's what Paul is saying here. So what you need to do is, what you and I need to do is we need to contextualize our suffering within the love of Christ. He gave himself to me, and that means that my suffering has purpose and meaning to him. My suffering does not mean that he abandons me any more than when you're suffering with your kids, you know, the late night diaper change or the frustrating teenage years or the kid who's not majoring what you want him to in college. When you're suffering with that, you don't abandon him. We should think of our suffering in those terms. Locate your suffering in the context of God's love. Okay. Second, locate, locate your suffering in the context of God's story. It's a story that we've been talking about, Romans 5 through 8, the story of the universe. Now to talk about that, let's talk about this verse here in verse 36. Paul just seems sort of random. Paul interrupts himself. He says, can, can, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can persecution, famine, sword... Then he goes on and answers it in verse 37, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors. But he interrupts himself with this quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. In verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, 
if you're with us in the sanctuary right now, I put an insert into your bulletin, which is actually all of Psalm 44. I'm going to look at that for a minute. If you're at home watching, uh, grab your Bible and look at Psalm 44. I'm working off the principle articulated by Richard Hayes, who is um, a really excellent New Testament scholar at Duke in North Carolina, who wrote a book called Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul, where he argues that when you read Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, you should go back to the Old Testament and read the larger quotation that it comes from. Because the New Testament writers and speakers, whether it's Jesus or Peter or Paul or John, when they quote from the Old Testament, they expect their readers to know the Old Testament in such a way that they catch all the illusions that are surrounding the quote. Much like if I say a quote from, you know, from Casablanca, if, if I say, uh, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship or uh, we'll always have Paris, you don't just think about that quote. If you've seen the movie, you think about the whole story and how it fits in there. So what we're going to do is we're going to, as quick as we can, go back to Psalm 44 because Psalm 44, super interesting and totally has to do with the theme that Paul's talking about. If your familiarity with the Psalms is limited to, uh, you know, uh, uh, greeting card quotes and, uh, you know, inspirational verse of the day, uh, rip-off calendars and the Bible app that sends you the, the, the Bible verse of the day, then you might be surprised to find out that there's a lot of black and dark stuff in the Psalms. Psalm 44 is one of these. Now, it starts off, I have, this is not in the Hebrew, but I have broken this in, in your uh, pull out there into three sections, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 19, and verses 20 through 26. Because the psalm roughly falls into three sections. And it starts off like lots of psalms do, with this confession of faith. God, you're an unbelievably majestic God, and you win victories for us. So we're not going to read the whole thing, okay? But let me give you some highlights. Verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. Look at that in verse 4. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Listen to the triumph in verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Verse 7. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. That's just classic. Like if God's on your side, if, if you're on God's side, you will win the victory. But then like so many Psalms, it takes a dark turn. Because that confession of faith doesn't always match up with our current reality, the reality of suffering. Look in verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Verse 11. You've made us like sheep for slaughter. I'm going to come back to that line because the psalmist uses it twice here. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Our neighbors taunt us. You've made us a byword, etc. All day long my disgrace is before me. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Now, here's a little bit of a difference. Some of you who have studied the Psalms might be familiar with Psalms, frequently Psalms of David, where he says, God, I love you, you're a great God, but I don't know where you're at right now. And I'm talking to you, and I, I, I don't get any sense that you're hearing me, and I'm miserable, I cry all night long, my bones ache, and I know it's because I've rebelled against you. This is not what this psalm does. The psalm starts, our section starts off with, God, I'm alone, you've abandoned us. But the psalmist says this, check this out in verse 17, we have not forgotten you. All this bad stuff is happening to us, although we haven't abandoned you. We have remained loyal and committed to you, and yet all this bad stuff still has from us. Verse 18 has happened to us. Verse 18, our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, the desert. And covered us with the shadow of death. 
God, bad things and suffering has happened to us, and it's not our fault. We have not turned from you. Now, verse 20 is another turning point. Because in verse 20, the psalmist is going to do that. Verse 20 and following, the psalmist is going to say, we believe that God is a great God, first section. But our present reality is one of suffering, even though we believe that. How do those two things work together? Third section is, check this out. It's not triumph. It's not like, okay, so God, I'm going to pray to you, and I'm going to know that everything's better. I'm going to pray to you, and you're going to deliver me. Sometimes the Psalms say this one, say that. This Psalm doesn't. This Psalm ends with, we're still screwed up. Our life is still miserable, and all we're left now with is a prayer, but it's a prayer in your presence, contextualized by your story. Check this out, verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God discover this? Like, I mean, God knows if we're faithful or not, and we are. Yet, for, for he knows the secrets of the heart. Verse 22, and here's, here's our text from Romans, and you'll see in a second why Paul has pulled this out. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And here's this prayer. Like, it's not this prayer of confidence that, God, now you're going to fix us. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how the psalm ends. With just this prayer, but with verse 22, the prayer is suddenly founded upon this knowledge that my suffering has been joined up with God's story. It is not random and empty. It's not completely useless, but it's somehow bound with God's story. Look at that line, first line of verse 22. Two, two points I want to make here. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day. It's not our fault, but we are, we are being persecuted actually for your sake, God. The psalmist, it doesn't make everything better. You can see that in the psalm. But the psalmist suddenly realizes, so in the words of Derek Kidner, it's a fantastic commentary on the psalms, he says this, at this point, the psalmist realizes that maybe his suffering is not punishment, but battle scars. Maybe his suffering is not abandonment, but battle wounds. I am killed, I am suffering for the sake of God. I am suffering with God. Look, why is it that we give, here's a question for you. Why is it that we give purple hearts to our service people that are wounded in battle? It seems a little bit weird on the surface, right? You know, hey, you got shot, let's celebrate. There's a certain sort of like, or maybe the wrong way to think about it would be like, you know, here's something to, too bad for you, we'll give you a pretty medal. Actually, if you know anybody who has a purple heart, they, they don't value it as some sort of like compensation or conciliatory prize for getting wounded in battle. The, the, the purple heart recognizes that in the story of a war, the victory in the war only happens if people participate in the war to the point of suffering and death. And that means that suffering and death in war deserves to be glorified, deserves to be celebrated. That's what suffering and death do. So this is what, this is what Paul is saying. This is, what, this is why he's quoting Psalm 44. He's, he's saying, I'm not telling you that it's going to be great and you're going to come out unscathed and everybody's going to be happy and everybody's going to live this peaceful, tranquil life. That's not going to happen as a Christian. But what I am saying is, is that by suffering with Christ, by suffering in God's story, you are participating in this fight to bring about new creation. That when new creation comes, it will be, to some extent, mysteriously, because God's people's suffering has been joined up with the suffering of Jesus Christ. It will be your purple heart. 
It will be a credit to you. You will be, like I said a couple weeks ago, you will be a hero. You will be glorified. You will be a hero in the story with Jesus. Second question. This is, I probably should have done this illustration 20 years ago. It's just as anachronistic as uh, uh, Downton Abbey, maybe even more so. I don't know. So the movie uh, Braveheart, the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, is that, if you've seen that, um, is that, let me ask you a question, is that a happy movie or a sad movie? Is it a happy movie or a sad movie? So, I mean, I, I guess cl clearly it's sad, right, in the last scene. Is it possible to spoil a movie that's 25 years old? In the last scene, you know, the Mel Gibson character, William Wallace, the Scottish freedom fighter, he gets executed uh, for treason, for crimes against the King of England. So he dies, right, in the last scene. So there's this, of course, that's sad, right? He dies, like, screaming the word freedom. He dies screaming the word freedom. And so when you watch that movie, there's a sense that, you know, it's sad he died. But there's also the sense as a modern, western, liberal, committed to democracy, there's this sense that human freedom is so important. And that's a part of our story. And so there's goodness in it too. Like, it's just a part of one story. As Americans, it's like an early part of our story, the war against monarchy and authoritarianism and totalitarian governments. And so there's something good about it, right? And in case you missed the point, Mel Gibson makes... Uh, that movie about the Patriot, which is basically the same movie with the same, but just in the Revolutionary War time, right, where the, the hero gets killed at the end, crying liberty or whatever. Just in case you missed it, it's a part of this story. It's a part of this extended story. That's what our suffering is. I'm not saying that, you, you know, you're going to, so, you know, spoiler alert, you're going to get sick and die someday. I'm not telling you, God's not here telling you in Romans 8, like, it's all going to be okay. You're on your deathbed, you're going to be crying, like, God, deliver me. But what you should know is that suffering, the suffering of your death, the suffering of your personal disillusionments, the suffering of your uh, relationship betrayals, the suffering of your financial hardships, the suffering of your, you know, your achy knee, whatever it is, see that in the context of God's story, that he's using that to bring about new creation in the story. Okay, third thing. So, so first we should see our suffering in the context of God's love. Secondly, in the context of God's story. And then thirdly, in the context of God's suffering. And this is the second part of the quote from uh, Psalm 44 and verse 22, um, where uh, Paul says, well, the psalmist says, and then Paul quotes, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's the second time the psalmist has used that line in the psalm. What does it mean? There's a certain sort of sense in which sheep to be slaughtered is just like slang for like people dying right and left. For instance, you know, like we sent that unit into the battle and they were like sheep to be slaughtered. But listen, if you're one of the original readers of Psalms, if you're Paul, certainly, what is the sheep that's to be slaughtered? The first thing in your mind when you think about sheep being slaughtered is the sacrificial system in the tabernacle and in the temple. The sheep being slaughtered is God's plan to make things right. It's temporary, of course, because you, you and I know about Jesus. And what is the psalmist saying then? He's saying, like, you've turned us into the sacrificial lambs. It's their sin. We're being persecuted by other people it's the sin of the broken world. We haven't betrayed you, and you're turning us in to the lambs that are getting beat up and oppressed and bruised and killed and sacrificed for their sins. And the, the, the reason why Paul quotes this is because this is exactly how he wants us to see our suffering. As joined up with the suffering of the sacrifice. We are lambs to the slaughter. When you suffer in the name of Jesus... When your loved one dies or when your back hurts and all points in between, 
You are a lamb to the slaughter. You are bringing about redemption. Well, I don't need to do this with you guys. Maybe I do. If you're struggling with this sort of thing, who is, who is the ultimate lamb that is slaughtered? Well, you know, it's Isaiah 53, right? It's the suffering servant. It's Jesus who Isaiah, the suffering servant psalm in Isaiah 53. Isaiah says he was the lamb led to slaughter and a lamb who was sheared and he didn't complain. He was slaughtered for us and he took it. And that's the heart of the gospel is that our God suffers and dies for us. But now the outworking of it here in Romans 8 and in Psalm 44, 22 is that we are sheep to be slaughtered too. Your suffering is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. Your suffering brings about new creation. When you decide, I'm going to carry the sins of my friends and my loved ones and my community and my country and my town, I'm going to carry those on my own shoulders, not because I'm strong enough to carry them, but because by the power of Jesus, I will be like Jesus and carry the sins of others on my own shoulders. Your suffering turns from like random pain and brokenness and hopelessness and misery and questions to a tool that God is using to bring about new creation. Again, I'm, again, I'm not saying it's all good and so you should feel happy about this. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that it has purpose and it has meaning. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who causes death and unrighteousness to pass over us. Jesus is the one who one day gets rid of all death and unrighteousness. In fact, this is, there's three reasons why Paul speaks of Christ the suffering lamb and then unites us to Christ the suffering lamb as the suffering lambs here in Romans 8. There's three reasons. One is because we're not strong enough to pay for the sins of the world because Jesus does. But second of all, Jesus' goal is to ultimately get rid of all suffering. But third of all, the way he does this is through his death and resurrection, working out through the lives of his people so that we become the sacrificial lambs, that we become the ones who suffer for everybody else in our church and in our homes and our community. That's the power of the gospel, to turn our suffering into meaning and purpose. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to see our suffering in gospel light and uh, not, not of course, to run, not, of course, to... Uh, to pretend like it's not a big deal and that suffering is not suffering and that there isn't sin and evil back behind all of it too. But to realize that even back beyond that is the deeper magic of the gospel, the deeper goal and purpose that you have in renewing all things and that you have chosen us to suffer with you and that you've given us by the power of your Holy Spirit the ability to locate our suffering in your love, in your story, and in fact, in your own suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand with me and we will continue in prayer. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would be with St. James Lutheran Church and I pray that we would not be a church that runs from suffering. Certainly, we don't want to be uh, sadistic we don't want to, or, or masochistic. We don't want to embrace suffering as some sort of like, in some sort of uh, martyr goal. But we don't want to run from it either. We want to uh, see purpose and meaning in it. We don't want to waste it. We want to find in, in our suffering a link with the suffering of your son Jesus. And Father, we, we, pray, we pray that you would not waste our suffering. That you would turn our suffering to your glory. That you would allow our suffering to be used to bring the suffering Jesus into our world. So that others who don't know him could see him be drawn to him, and come to confess him as Lord too. That you would use the suffering of St. James Lutheran Church to transform Glen Carbon. Lord, in your mercy. 
Father, we pray for those this morning who are suffering, and I realize that that means all of us, uh, uh, more or less. But we pray specifically for those who are suffering uh, this morning, for three people who are suffering physically right now. I want to pray for Alvina Gathman, uh, Mardell's mother, who uh, has cancer, and it's grown throughout her body. And she's been brought home to hopefully uh, be comfortable and to uh, be wrapped up into your arms soon. Pray for her, Father, we pray and ask that you would give her comfort and hope in your resurrection. And for Mardell and her sister too, and for that whole family who has tragically and brutally lost the majority of their immediate family within the past year. Father, give them purpose and hope in your son's resurrection. Turn that suffering into your glory. Raise us all up on the last day. Father, I also pray for Dave Wrigley. Um, uh, Michelle's uh, father, who uh, is in hospital now, uh, trying to work his way back from a pulmonary embolism and is really struggling, uh, pour strength and energy into his body. And, and above all, again, like with the Gathmans, pour the hope of your resurrection into his soul. Help him have confidence in the future renewal of his body and in all things. And also, I want to pray for Norval who is at Anderson right now with just a, a, a host of different problems, heart problems, lung problems. Heal him, Father. Bring him back to us soon. Uh, give him strength and energy. And, and as again, and as always, we come back to your new creation. Come quickly. Renew all things. Lord, in your mercy. Father, light St. James Lutheran Church on fire for Glen Carbon. May we be the kind of town that is, may, may we be the kind of church that is indispensable to this town. May others tangibly see your love exhibited in our acts of mercy, in our acts of service. And as, as Stacy brought to us this morning in the announcements, may our youth group be uh, another, um, along with our school ministries and our other mercy ministries, may our youth group be like an advanced guard of bringing this about. May we serve each other and love each other, and may we see your kingdom grow powerfully here in the community. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things only because Jesus, your Son, has brought us into your presence by wrapping us up inside himself so that when you see him, you see us. And when you see us, you see him. And we praise you for that. And, and we, and we uh, rejoice and glory in the love that's ours because of that relationship. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words, with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus Christ, the Lamb.